Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. Exodus chapter 20. Would you follow along with me as I read our text of Scripture this morning? Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I The Lord your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, And rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Father, we come to you this morning in light of what we have just read, seeking your help to understand it for our lives today. God, your word is unfailing. Your word is unchanging. Your word tells us that your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And so, Father, we desire your help as we look at these commandments that you have given to your people. We ask humbly God to instruct us by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to the truth of your word, that we may understand how these commandments have bearing on our life as your people today. Father, as we consider this, I am mindful and pray for those who may be here today who Do not have a relationship through faith in Jesus Christ with you in this moment. I pray that the consideration of these commandments would soften their heart and that the gospel seed would fall on fertile, cultivated ground. And I pray that the water of your word, God, would give life to that seed and that it would bear fruit to the professed salvation of of lost souls. God, as we gather here and as people gather in countless many places in our country and around the world, I pray that your word as it is preached would bring the sinner to repentance and salvation. I pray, God, that your word would promote the holiness of your people, that we would be holy as you are holy. And I pray through all of it that Christ the Savior would be exalted. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. I will confess that I am, I I guess more often than not, I am intimidated to open God's word. And the Bible says that I should be because the Bible says that those who teach will receive a harsher judgment than those who listen. So I am, if it were, on trial, and whoever speaks, kind of on trial every single time we do so because one day I will stand before God most high and I will give an account for every word that comes from my mouth to instruct you. I am more intimidated by Exodus 20 than I have been perhaps by any other passage. I wish that I were intimidated for different reasons, but here's why I'm intimidated. You can find endless teachings on this passage. 
Exodus chapter 20 has been taught over and over and over ad nauseum. I'm concerned that it has not been rightly taught. I'm concerned that it has not been rightly applied. And I'm concerned that we may look at this piece of scripture and think, yeah, and? The Ten Commandments are intimidating to me because they are so taught. And I've never taught them. I've never once opened the Bible to Exodus 20 and sought to bring truth to bear on the lives of people in front of me. And so I'm intimidated by them. And I'm intimidated, most of all, by your preconceived ideas regarding them. And so I am, as I preach, pleading with God to give me the power of the Holy Spirit that I may convey something that is of worth to you because in my flesh I feel that I am utterly and completely unable to do so. Before we begin a specific examination of each of the Ten Commandments, we must rightly understand them as a whole. And so today we will examine the Ten Commandments as a whole, not individually, not line by line, not number by number, but simply as a whole. My goal is to call out the importance of the Ten Commandments, every single one of them, in our lives today. The Ten Commandments have bearing right now for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and for every unbeliever in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that the law of God, which I will draw out more as we go, the Bible tells us that the law of God is law for all people. So no one escapes needing to understand and know the law of God, specifically these Ten Commandments. I hope to help us understand what the commandments are as a whole, and it is my prayerful hope that you will be called to a greater obedience of God's command, and even specifically these ten. We are all familiar with the phrase, I bet someone used it this past week. I bet someone in this room used it this past week. Well, it's not set in stone. We all know what that means. You're making plans with someone, you're asking about plans, you get the details. Well, it's not set in stone. It's interesting to me. How many of you, just think about it, how many of you used it or how many of you heard it this past week? It's so common. Right? People are, let's do it. People are showing me their hands, I didn't even ask for them. Show of hands if you used it or you heard it this past week. Okay, throughout the room, not many, but several. Set in stone. Set in stone. We all know what it means, right? We all know what that phrase means. There's a plan, but it's due to change. There's a date, a time, but it's not set in stone. It's subject to change. When something is set in stone, however, settled, not changing it's interesting to me how a godless world uses this phrase without ever thinking about its origination. I don't know if you do this because I am a pastor, I'm called on to speak. And because I'm called on to speak, I think about the words that proceed out of my mouth. And some of you thought, we wish you thought more about them. True. Uh, but I think often about words and, and what they mean and why do we say that? Where did that come from? And this week, I honestly, I wanted to know, what does the world think about the term set in stone? So I went to one of the most unreliable sources on the face of planet Earth, the worldwide waste of time, known as the internet, and I typed in, what is the origination of the term set in stone? And do you know what the World Wide Web told me? <clears throat> on our journey through Exodus... We are now encountering one of the most famous scenes throughout all of the Bible and throughout all of human history. When God gives the Ten Commandments to his people. When God sets in stone his law for his and all people. Every time you hear that phrase, I want to help you in your evangelism. How do I share Christ with people? Here's how. Every time you hear the term set in stone, ask someone if they know where it came from. Oh, man, that's a, you know what? We were talking about that on Sunday at church. And somebody's going to be like, I'm all done because I don't want to hear about church. Do you know where that term set in stone came from? It came from Exodus chapter 20 and subsequent passages where God decreed unto man his law and set it in stone. <clears throat> the prologue, and this is important. 
Often we jump, and this is why I'm so concerned with how the teaching of the Ten Commandments unfolds before us in many outlets. We often simply start at, you shall have no other gods before me. If I were to ask, what are the, what's the start of the Ten Commandments? How do the Ten Commandments start? We would typically, I would think, commonly jump to no other gods. You shall have no other gods. In fact, as I was preparing to preach that commandment this week, and the Lord said, oh son, would you look at my word a little closer? Yes, Lord, I will. I saw verse 1 and verse 2. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 2 is the prologue to every one of the commandments that follows down through verse 17. It is wrong of us, and I say that carefully, but I do say it with the authority of Scripture. It is wrong of us to consider any number of the Ten Commandments without first considering, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, why would I make that a point? I would make that a point because you can go into, well, still perhaps many, they've removed some. You can go into the legal realm of our world and you can find the Ten Commandments established there. You'll find plaques or you'll find there's monuments to the Ten Commandments in legal courthouses and buildings. Why would the world put those in a public place while also denying the God who gave them? Because God has written his law on the heart and mind of his creation. And it can't be escaped. And you understand that this goes so far outside of the U.S. legal system. God has written his law on the heart and mind of his creation, humanity. The crown jewel, if you will, of God's creation. And he begins his commandments to his people with this statement. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of, out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We must consider briefly, what does that mean, land of Egypt, house of slavery? As we've examined over the last several weeks and certainly throughout the first 19 chapters of Exodus, Egypt and the house of slavery owed only to the bondage of God's people that they could not break and could not escape. They were in Egypt, which was a terrible place for them because they were oppressed. You'll remember that Pharaoh killed their firstborn children when they were born. They imposed burdens on them that they could not bear. You need to make all of your quota of bricks, but we're not going to give you any more supplies. And they were oppressed and held down by Pharaoh, who would not let them go. They were enslaved beyond their ability to be free. God says, I am, pulling all the way back to Exodus chapter 3 where he says to Moses, Moses, the people are going to know who sent me. God, who shall I say sent me? And you will say, I am. They're going to ask, what is your name? And you will say, I am sent me. I am the Lord your God. And this is what makes those statements by Christ in the gospel so significant. I am the bread. I am the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The placement of the Ten Commandments, yes, in this awe-striking and terrifying scene, it is important to note, is after Egypt. It's after the house of slavery. This must be understood. You must understand this. God did not give them his law in Egypt. Why is that important? Could you help me understand? Yes, because they might have thought, if we do good enough, God might set us free. But you cannot do good enough to be set free from the house of slavery that we know as sin, that they knew as Egypt. You cannot do enough good. It is important for us to understand. God gave them his law after he demonstrated his grace. And so many people today, I'll get myself figured out. I'll get myself cleaned up. Maybe you're here today. I, I, just, I just need to get things figured. We heard testimony of the work going on in the jail. Do you know how many times a person incarcerated in jail will just say, I just got to get myself cleaned up, then I'll be in a better place. You can't do that with God. 
And so the placement of the Ten Commandments after Egypt, after the house of slavery, after God has, by his power, by his grace, delivered his people is extremely important. I've saved you. I've delivered you. I've redeemed you. I will dwell with you. Be holy. All of the Ten Commandments are pointing, pointing to the holiness of God's people in a different way than we see holiness, but holiness nonetheless. The exodus from Egypt is such a fantastic picture of God's saving grace. In it, we find ourselves burdened and encumbered by sin. I know that it is the testimony of many in the church that we were saved at young ages. Many in the church will say, you know, I, I, I was seven I was eight. That testimony is recurring over and over. If you have been a Christian for a long time, there's a likelihood that you were at one point a child in church and a parent, a Sunday school teacher, a youth leader, a pastor. Someone talked with you, prayed with you, and you believed on Jesus and you were saved. But that is not every person's story. Many are the stories of people who are trapped in bondage to sin. And they may be most excellent people. They may be good moral people because good moral people exist outside of faith in Jesus Christ. But that does not save. It is the deliverance of God from sin that separates us from God that saves. It is the grace of God. God has exerted his grace, delivered his people, redeemed his people by the blood of a lamb, and now at the foot of the mountain, they are encountering this God who says, before all these commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You are never, ever to forget what I have done in your life. And how often do we take for granted the work that God has done in our life? You're no longer in Egypt. You're no longer in the house of slavery. Perhaps you're here today and you are. Oh, it would be my prayer that you would be delivered and redeemed. That the grace and truth of Jesus Christ would penetrate your heart and mind and you would say, I believe, Lord Jesus, that you rose from the dead, God, that you have saved me through faith. It is wrong for us to view the Ten Commandments without taking into account the very one who gave them. And so even as man morally looks at the Ten Commandments, most people are not going to be offended by many of these commandments, especially not the last six. The first four might cause you some problems in some places. But when you get into the second table of the law, the last six commandments, starting with honor your father and mother, most people are not going to have a problem with that. Why? It's good morals. However, and the danger in the church, the danger in the world is that we would want to skip the first four commandments. And that's grievous on our part. I want to start this morning, and by start, I don't mean that I'm just beginning. I mean the foundation that I want to start cultivating as we go through the Ten Commandments. I want to start with simply some general biblical information about the Ten Commandments. This is just literal and perhaps technical, but I think it is important. I think there are things that we can learn from these facts regarding the Ten Commandments. What are they? We just read them, so we see what they are, but I mean like literally, physically, spiritually, what are the Ten Commandments? These collections of sayings, sometimes referred to as the Decalogue, which is a word that means ten words. That's what it originally was called, the ten words. God spoke ten words, ten statements to his people, ten commandments to his people. What are they? Exodus chapter 31 verse 18 tells us, the commandments were written on two tablets of stone with the finger of God. What are the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are the very words of God written in stone for man. What are they? The very words of God written in stone for man. Interesting, and I just caught this this past week. So for those that are like, oh, I could never know the Bible the way you do, you can now feel better that I don't know the Bible any better than I thought I did. Did you know that the Ten Commandments were written on both sides of two tablets? How many of us think, can you put the logo picture up there, the silly graphic that I made for this sermon series? It's somewhere. Now, oh, look at that. That's what we picture, isn't it? That's what we picture. God with his finger wrote on both sides of two tablets. 
Like, I, I'm, full confession, my mind was blown. Both sides. And Moses had to carry these things. So we think they were, you know, it was possible that they could be carried. We see, you know, Hollywood has made this a famous scene, these big tablets that they're stone, etched in stone. Like, how big are they going to be that you can carry? And we know, like, how big were they? We know that later in Exodus, the Ark of the Covenant was made. And we know that these tablets went into them. So we think that they were able to be carried. It's interesting. In the ancient world, they would write on tablets of wood covered in wax. And everybody said, what? They would take pieces of wood and cover them in wax, and then they could etch in the wax. Do you know the problem with this? All you've got to do is get the wax warm enough, and you can erase the wax. So the fact that this is a very common way in the ancient world this time for them to write things, the fact that God chose two tablets of stone and wrote with his finger on both sides makes them a decree that is by far superior than any other written thing from any other king ever. The Ten Commandments, two tablets Exodus 32, 16 says the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Exodus 32, 19 tells us that the first two tablets were destroyed by Moses when he was angry with the people for their sin with the golden calf, which we'll get to in several weeks, I'm sure. They build a calf because they want to see the God that delivered them. And Moses hears it and God says, go down to them for they've sinned. And Moses goes down and the word of God says that he threw the commandments and shattered them at the feet of the mountain. He shouldn't have done that, but we don't really see God coming back on him for that. But that's how he treated the word of God. And then God says, go back up on the mountain and cut two things of stone I already gave you two. This time God says, cut them out and bring them up and we will rewrite my words on that stone. God's word abides forever, Peter says. It's firmly fixed in the heavens, the psalmist declares. So in Exodus 34, God gives two new tablets because God's word is set in stone. It was no trouble for him to replace what had been broken. John, you seem to keep emphasizing two tablets. Is that significant? If that question is going in your mind, I'm really glad. And if it wasn't, I just put it in there. I am emphasizing two tablets, and it is significant. Why? We do not know precisely what was written on each tablet. We see precisely what was written, but we don't see in what order. Like, what was on front and back? Was this like, there's 10, so did they do the easy math of five on each, five on one, five on the other, front and back? Is that what they, we don't know what they did. Because the Ten Commandments, by God's design, have been lost to time. We don't have an ancient artifact of Ten Commandments to go to. The, the ark that contains them is gone. Nobody knows where it's at. All we have is God's written word to tell us about them. But two tablets are significant, actually very much so. We don't know what was written on each of them, but we know the contents of the Ten Commandments. And the reason that two tablets are important is because there are two elements to the Ten Commandments. There are two groups, if you will, to the Ten Commandments. Commandments 1 through 4, you can see in the text before you, verse 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, all having to do with man's relationship to God. Commandments 1 through 4. Commandments 5 through 10, all having to do with man's relationship to man. And so when we talk about there being two tables, and the picture that we all have in our minds, we understand that as one is my duty to God and one is my duty to you, to mankind, to those around me. Of note, this is precisely why when in the Gospels, it was referenced to me earlier this morning after Sunday school, Matthew 22, 36, and 37. You can also find it in Mark 12, 30, and 31. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He effectively says, these two, which is interesting. His words in the scripture, the greatest is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second 
is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is why when you hear pastors talk about the Ten Commandments being boiled down to two, that's why. When Christ says the greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself, we have two responsibilities as God's people. That's it. How, how simple is the Christian life? How simple has God made it for us? Just two responsibilities. Love God and love people the way God tells you to. Let's back up. Love God the way God tells you to love him and love people the way God tells you to love people. That's it. How simple and how awesome would our life as a church and as Christians be if we just simply did what God said to do? Two things. That you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's obedience to God, and that you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, that you love people as yourself. So even before we get to the question, do these still have meaning for us today, I hope that you're starting to build a sense of understanding that the commandments we're about to explore over the next coming weeks absolutely still have meaning for us today. What are the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are the law of God. It should be known for those Bible scholars in the room that are like, oh, yes, pastor, no, I want you to understand right now, I can do no justice to the phrase, the law of God, in this hour. That would need to be a sermon series unto itself, and I have no idea how long it would even be. I can by no means do justice to that phrase, but it must be acknowledged. The Ten Commandments are God's righteous standard for life and faith. God has a standard for you to follow, and it's laid out in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are God's righteous standard for the life and faith of his people. They're not simply a good code of moral conduct. I need this to be understood. Your pastors, presently too, we pray for more. Do not want moral goodness thought of as salvation by grace through faith of God. Moral goodness can be pursued in the world. We are after the regeneration of dead hearts brought to new life through faith in Jesus Christ. And so you cannot simply follow the Ten Commandments and get your way to God. This is, again, the importance of God giving the commandments after the salvation of his people out of Egypt. If you follow them, you will live a good moral life. But there are people who think that if they simply do these things, they will gain things that are promised in God's word. And that is not true. They are not a good code of moral conduct. They are commands to be obeyed. They're not good thoughts. They're not positive statements. They are commands to be obeyed. The use of the word law in the Bible, especially in our English translations, can be very confusing. You have actually not seen the word law. I'm using it because that's the word the Bible uses when it talks about this passage. The word law can be very difficult to understand in the Bible. That's because when they say law, there are several things wrapped up into it. And so I am about to get technical, and I am calling for and requiring that you pay attention to these technicalities because as I set this foundation today, they're going to be very necessary when we begin examining the Ten Commandments. Three common laws found biblically, specifically the Old Testament, where we are living in the book of Exodus, are moral, civil, and ceremonial. The Bible refers to moral law. The Bible talks of and commands ceremonial law, and the Bible reveals civil law. I want to give you very brief definitions of these three, and we'll move on. Moral law has existed since in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded man. Moral law has existed since the Lord God commanded the man. And what happened? Man disobeyed. And what happened? Humanity was plunged in total into the effect of sin. Separation from God needing the judgment of God. Moral law has existed since the Garden of Eden. It is the law written on the conscience of man. It is the law that recognizes good from evil. Knowledge of this law 
comes from being made in the image and according to the likeness of God. No one can escape it. Not even people in those jungles who have no written language. They can't escape it. Moral law is known because God has written it on the hearts of mankind. This is why, think about the Old Testament prior to the law of Moses. Think about Cain and Abel. Don't do it, Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. Well, the law is not given yet, so what sin? Now, this is going to be a backwards conversation in a few minutes, and I need you to pay attention to it. People argue, well, there was no law before the Ten Commandments, so how do people know it was sin? But now we argue, well, there is no law because of Christ, so sin doesn't matter. Uh Uh-oh. Let me play backwards for you because this is important and it's pervasive in the church. Prior to the law, and some may even say prior to Christ, but prior to the law, how do we know what sin is? Because there's no law. And then all of a sudden, we look back at Christ and we say there is no law because we're under grace, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. The big word is antinomialism, which is just means there is no regard for any rule whatsoever. That is ruling places that call themselves churches right now. It doesn't matter. It's all okay. And that's a lie. Moral law existing since the Garden of Eden. Ceremonial law. Ceremonial law came with its sacrifices, its blood of bulls and goats, and sprinklings of blood on altars, and offerings of pigeons and lambs, and all such things that we find. Ceremonial law, washings and specific days and festivals. All things that the Bible says were nothing but shadows of the good things to come, and that is Christ. Jesus satisfied and brought to completion ceremonial law. Moral law existing since the garden. Ceremonial law, those commandments for how we worship God and civil law. This one is interesting. Civil law. In God's progressive revelation of himself to man, where laws defined how God's people would interact with one another, God brought his people into a civil state. And so civil law governed them. Do you understand? The big word is theocracy. I use that word intentionally. I know not everybody likes big words, but the big word is theocracy, where God is the government over mankind. And we don't necessarily have a problem with that thought except we have to reconcile that God has placed us under different governments as his people in this world. So our highest allegiance is to God while we, hear the word, civilly obey the laws that are governing us here in in Shawasee County, Michigan, USA, and other places. They follow various laws. Civil law started for God's people when he brought them into a civil state where laws defined how God's people interacted with one another. They were to obey, and in their obedience, they would live well. However, through Christ, we are brought into a spiritual state. It is not the same for us as it was for the Israelites in a civil state where civil laws defined God's people's interaction with one another. In a spiritual state, obedience to Christ governs how we interact with one another. When I obey the laws of the land, I do nothing but glorify God in my obedience to them insofar as they do not call me to disobey God, right? We understand this. I obey the laws of the land everywhere I go insofar as I am not disobeying God. But what is our highest obedience? Well, our highest obedience must be to God. And in obeying God, I interact with you in a different way than the laws of our land would allow. Civil law governed God's people in a civil state. God's law now covers us in a spiritual state as we obey Christ. Both the ceremonial law and civil law provide excellent principles that help us in applying God's word to our lives. But I'm about to make a big statement that you can write me about tomorrow. But ceremonial and civil laws found in the Old Testament mean nothing for the believer today. The ceremonial law that the Israelites followed does not mean anything for us as God's people today. The civil law that they followed 
does not mean anything for us today as God's people. There are great principles, and there are things that we perhaps should look at and consider how do we live by these. But they have been both of them, civil and ceremonial, fulfilled and changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. However, moral law has not changed. The Ten Commandments given here in Exodus chapter 20 have not changed. So this leads us to the question, if the the Ten Commandments are the law of God, we understand they are written on stone and given to the people to govern and guide his people. Now the question becomes, do any of them still apply today? And you all want me to tell you which ones apply. The quick answer is, yes, they still apply. The long answer of not necessarily which one, but how, will be examined as we look at each one of them. Interesting that the youth are also studying. So now we have our Sunday morning service with everyone together and the youth group on Sunday nights. They've also been studying the Ten Commandments and now we have a bit of a parallel situation happening for all of us in the room with adults and young people coming to understand the Ten Commandments together. So parents of teenagers, begin engaging your children right now around discussion regarding the Ten Commandments because they're beyond where we are and they might know more than you right now. Do any of the Ten Commandments still apply? Yes. Which ones? We'll look at those as we understand them. They all apply. Which ones is not the right question? How they apply will be answered as we better examine them. And so the statement, so common to us today, perhaps even said by you, I know I've said it in my own life, but I'm under grace, not the law. Pastor, you even just used John chapter 1. Somebody's a scholar looking back in their notes. You said in John chapter 1, it says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And if Jesus came to upend everything that was before, then why the law? Well, it's, it's interesting. And it is true. I have said that because the Bible does say that. The Bible does tell us that grace and truth came through Jesus But the Bible does not tell us that by grace and truth coming through Jesus, we no longer have to pay attention to God's Ten Commandments. In fact, Jesus and the apostles teach quite the opposite. Jesus himself, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. In fact, would you keep your place in Exodus and turn to Matthew? I want you to see it on the pages of Scripture for yourself. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I don't like to flip all around in the Scripture, but sometimes it's necessary. In this case, I feel that it is. I'm under grace, not the law. That's not what Jesus teaches. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus speaking in that great sermon. A friend of mine once said, if you could only save a certain portion of the Bible, what would it be? And he said, I would run to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I would cut it out of the pages of the Bible and I would cling to it for all of my days. Maybe somebody else said that before him, I don't know. But that's the importance of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's where we find ourselves. And look what Christ says down in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Side note, law or prophets means Old Testament. That's what's meant there. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, the Old Testament, all of those writings of the Torah for Jews in this day. Don't think I've come to abolish that. Verse 17 continues, I have not come to abolish them. Pause. If Jesus is saying I have not come to abolish the law, Christians today have absolutely zero ground to stand on by saying they don't apply, I'm under grace. You, you don't have that footing. I'm sorry. You, you, it's washed away like the sand on the shore. I have not come to abolish them, Jesus says, the end of verse 17, but to fulfill them. I'm the completion of, the fulfilling of, the fulfillment of, not the remover of. I've not come to abolish them. Here he goes on to say 18 through 20. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not... An iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So iota and dot, if you're holding the old uh, King James Version, which I do reference often, I love it, has in there jot and tittle. And this is, we were like, that's a really strange thing to say. What does that even mean? They have to do with the Hebrew language. This is why original languages are so vastly important. Jot and tittle have to do with the Hebrew language. One is the smallest, tiniest character of the Hebrew written language, and it's a word. 
It's just like a little, it looks like an apostrophe to us. Just, it's all it is. And it's an actual word. And it occurs more than 66,000 times. Will not disappear. And Tittle, what's that? I can't remember which is which, so forgive me, I didn't put these in my notes. I can't remember which is which. One of them is just a tiny little stroke at the end of a letter. Just, just a tiny little... Kind of like when we, some of you will write your sevens and you'll make the seven and you'll put a line through the, te, the, the, the stem of the seven, right? Make a seven, you put a thing through it. Why? Because you want somebody to understand that that's a seven and not a one. And so this little, at the end of a letter, would differentiate that from other things. And Jesus says none of that will pass away until it is accomplished. Heaven and earth will pass away. I'm under grace, not the law. Oh no, Christian, you are under the law. By grace. You are saved by grace, and now you obey the law and glorify God when you do. Therefore, verse 19, whoever relaxes, I want us all to pay attention here, and you can use this if you've got somebody who's like, the Ten Commandments don't apply. Look what Jesus says. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm not preaching Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 19, but that is our Lord's statement on the application of the Ten Commandments for his people. He is a New Testament figure, Jesus Christ, telling us I've not come to do away with them. I would continue to elaborate on this point, but we'll do so naturally. All of the Ten Commandments apply to us today. Furthermore, if the commandments do not apply, which they do, then someone has to explain not only what Jesus means in Matthew 5, but they have to explain all of the use of the commandments by the apostles throughout the New Testament. It's not so simple as just saying it doesn't apply and doesn't mean anything. So if they still apply, and they do, and this may be the biggest point and we'll close, what is the purpose? I want you to see the purpose. As we go into examining the commandments, I want you to understand why they apply to us. Great catechisms of the Christian faith help us learn biblical truth that God did not create us unable to keep the law. How many of you have felt frustrated by trying to obey God? I can't do it. Why did God give me this law that I can't follow? I can't do it. God did not create you that way. He did not create us unable to obey the law. However, since the disobedience of Adam and Eve, no mere human has been able to obey perfectly the law of God. But God still gives his law. Creation is fallen and since the fall, we cannot obey it perfectly. We consistently break it in thought, in word, in deed. So New City Catechism, question 15, asks this. Since no one can keep the law, key in on this statement, what is its purpose? John, what is the purpose of this? Like, you're not really telling me anything new. No, but I want you to wrestle down, have you understood the purpose of the Ten Commandments? Because we're going to study them, and you need to understand their purpose. What is its purpose? Answer, that we may know the holy nature of God, the character of his will. That we may know our sinfulness and desperate need for a savior. The law also teaches and exhorts us to live a life worthy of our savior. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? That we may know the holy nature of God, the sinful nature of our hearts, and thus our need for a Savior. I will not be able to convince you of your need for a Savior. I will do all that I can. But it is the law of God that convinces you. Romans chapter 3 tells us that indeed, not just every man, the entire world comes to an end and is stopped at the law of God. The law of God holds all to account. We briefly read the commandments today. Look at them. Put your eyes on God's word and look at the commandments. No other gods, no idols, no vain use of God's name. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. Yeah, John, so what? So one time this guy stood before Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said to him, you know the commandments. 
And the man said, I've done all those since I was a youth. And Jesus said, but one thing you lack. The reality is that in the answer of the man who walked away sad, do you know what he was missing? The first and greatest commandment. And so my concern in preaching and teaching through the Ten Commands becomes, I'm concerned that you may be here following the second table of the law, which has you living great with people around you, and even looking good when you come here. But you may be missing, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself an idol, you shall not use my name in vain, you will remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. You may be missing the first table of the law, and I desire a people. And God desires a people who obey all of God's commandments, who understand what God's commandments mean for us and live after them. Briefly, we looked at the commandments. And I now ask you, have you trusted Christ by faith? The one who kept all of the commandments perfectly and died for you when you couldn't do it. Because these laws mean nothing apart from Christ. What is the purpose? To show us our need for a Savior. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Have you yet to trust Christ by faith? Are you here, perhaps week after week, and I know because I've lived this life where week after week you look exactly what a Christian should look like, but you are denying the first four commandments and you are doing really well at the second ones, but those mean nothing apart from the first four. Have you yet to trust Christ by faith? Listen, you're striving to follow the five, six commandments that follow the first four. You're striving after that is, as Solomon would say, a chasing after the wind. When the first four, when love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength is not in the right place, your best attempt at the last second table of the law is in vain. So I urge you, if you have not yet called on Christ, do so today. It is only his grace through faith that saves no obedience of the law can do that. Interesting, I always contemplate and wonder when we're going to observe communion, what will the text be? Because we just do this on the first Sunday of the month. When you do this, the, the, the table says it, do this in remembrance of me. We do it regularly. The, the Bible tells us it's to continue on until Christ returns. And so I always wonder, what will we, what will we preach about on that Sunday? Because we don't necessarily plan things out super well if you've ever paid attention. What will we preach about when we get to communion? What a beautiful passage for us to consider and to then come to this meal. Communion is for those who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Communion is not only for members of this church, though it is specifically for members of this church. Communion is for those who have, through faith in Jesus Christ, called on the name of the Lord, who have repented of sin, who have seen the holy nature of God, the sinful nature of their heart, thus their need for the Savior, and have said, Oh my God, save me, Lord. I repent of my sin. Communion is for you. If you're not sure of your salvation, one, I don't really want you to leave without getting some questions answered and becoming more sure. You understand that your salvation is absolutely a matter of life and death eternally. And I want to know that we've done everything we can to, I hope, before God, share the word of life with you that you may also believe and be rescued from Egypt in the house of slavery. For those who have called on Jesus, the supper is for you. So in a few moments, we're going to pray and we're going to pass a cracker and some juice that represents the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a visual reminder of the sacrifice that our God paid for us in his death. He was broken for our sins, bruised and battered for our iniquities, and bled and died to set us free and forgive us. That's the gospel right there. Have you called on Jesus? I'm going to pray. We're going to have some men come and we're going to distribute the elements here. In this moment, as we pray, examine your heart. Are you clean before the Lord? Oh God, save me, forgive me. I see my need for you. I trust you. 
If you are here and profess faith in Jesus as the elements pass, they are for you. If you have questions, if you're confused, if you're not sure, I want you to feel absolutely zero obligation to take of these elements. In fact, I warn you, if you're confused or uncertain, let them pass and feel no judgment from any soul in this room. God, I pray that through the teaching of your word this day, we would understand the importance of the Ten Commandments in our life. God, we see them as your law, as your word governing us. We see them as your decree for your people for all of time. We see you, Christ, fulfilling so much of it, and yet our call still is to obey. So, Father, we pray for strength, especially as we begin examining the Ten Commandments. Oh, God, would you strengthen us to obey? Go before the preaching of your word in subsequent weeks, Father, that we would realize and recognize gods that may be before you, idols that may be set up, improper uses of your name, a lack of attention to the specific worship of you. Oh, Father, I pray, would you help us to see how we can honor our father and mother in a way that glorifies you? Father, I pray, guard us from adultery and lying and coveting, from stealing, from murder. Father, these things that you have commanded, do not do them. They should not be named among us. Oh, Father, would you point out where we may be in error? And I pray, Father, as I understand your word, I pray that the spirit of the living God would be stirring those to understand the spirit of the law and not only the words. God, as we gather for this, the Lord's Supper, as we proclaim your death, Lord Jesus, until you return, I pray that you be glorified. I pray that this would be a deep moment of communion with you, as we understand that when we receive the elements, we are participating in what you have done for us. We are acknowledging your death, your shed blood for our sin. Oh God, be with us, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.